Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to this bonus episode. My name is Jo McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Norman Joel Canderson. Hi everyone. So this episode is part of a public engagement project funded by the Beacon Bursary Scheme at the University College London. We're incredibly lucky to be part of this project that has brought six young adults who've had radiotherapy together with radiation researchers funded by Cancer Research UK, Radnet City of London, to record these special episodes as part of the podcast series. These episodes will give each young adult a chance to share their stories and also have an important conversation about cancer research and patient involvement in research. So we are absolutely delighted to introduce our guests this evening. So I'd like to introduce Elena Espinosa Cabrera and Dr. Gemma Eminich. Hello both of you. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been so excited to have you both on. Um, Elena, can you just introduce yourself for us please? Yeah, of course. So I'm Elena. I'm a second year medical student at the University of Edinburgh and I'm 20 years old. Thank you. And Gemma? Yeah, so I'm Gemma Minovich. I'm a um, gynaecological clinical oncologist at University College London Hospital. Um, So I treat um, patients with gynaecological cancers, not mostly not ovarian cancers, um, but we'll come to that um, with radiotherapy and chemotherapy. and um, I do some research on the side and it's, yeah, it's a great job to do. And Elena might end up doing something like that. <laughs> Amazing. So Elena, what got you into medicine? Um, I remember doing a, well, I always loved science in school. And then I remember doing a work experience and I just loved the dynamic in the hospital. I loved that it was really um teamwork orientated you never really knew what was coming next but there was some structure and I just found it really exciting and I love the professionalism of it so um, I really wanted to pursue medicine and especially the medical research aspect of medicine but at the moment um, I guess my interest is leading more towards um, holistic medicine but I personally really believe that um, the Western world doesn't um, combine Western specialisation medicine with traditional um, holistic medicine enough. I believe that um, looking at the patient as a whole is so important and the NHS could do more of that. I recently qualified as a yoga teacher and I'm really interested in the power of the mind and everything. But I'm a medical student through and through. I believe in the science and I'm just happy to be here after all the treatment that I went through. Oh, thank you, Elena. And that sounds brilliant. I love a bit of yoga. I was very sceptical coming from a hit hit workout background. And then I did my first yoga class and I was I was a definite convert. I love it. So, Elena, you mentioned that you went through cancer diagnosis and treatment. Can you do you mind sharing a little bit about your diagnosis and what you actually um, had as part of your treatment pathway? Yeah, so I remember being in my last year of secondary school and I'd actually just submitted my EPQ which is like a mini dissertation that you can do during your A-levels and I'd actually submitted it on um, epigenetic research and how it had um, been um, improving uh, our treatment for cancers. Um, So I just submitted that and then I was studying for my BMAT exam um, which you need to take to get into medical school. Um, one morning I just woke up and it felt like I had a muscle strain on the side of my body. I called one 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 and they said you should probably go to A&E because you sound really uncomfortable. Um, they kept me overnight, I was on morphine. 
And then an ultrasound the following Tuesday showed that I had a teratoma, which is a cyst on my right ovary, which was 40 cent 14 centimetres um, in length. So I had <clears throat> an urgent laparotomy to remove that. And when they biopsied the laparotomy and took it to the lab, they found that there were really rare ovarian germ cell cancer cells um, inside of it. So they then proceeded to take out my right ovary um, and they decided that chemotherapy shouldn't be carried out because I was about to sit my A-levels and Professor Seckle, who I was lucky enough to be under the care of, has done loads of extensive research on such a rare cancer. Um, so we kind of left it in the past. I had check-up, follow-up follow scans every six months. Um, went on to medical school in Edinburgh in September 2021 and had had COVID that August. Uh, and I thought I was experiencing symptoms of long COVID because I was struggling to walk upstairs. I was just breathless all the time, coughing loads. I had pains in my neck and didn't really know what was happening. I was trying to rest, but it was fresh as week. It was a nightmare. And then um, <clears throat> went to get a chest X-ray because I had a follow-up call with my team back in London and they suggested a chest x-ray and from the chest x-ray they sent me straight to A&E where they told me that I had a mass that had spread through my lungs, in my mediastinum, I also had a pulmonary embolism so it wasn't looking great and they put me straight into the ICU and then I had nine rounds of chemotherapy and six rounds of immunotherapy. Gemma, um, in terms of kind of hearing Elena's story, from an oncologist's perspective, is that something that you typically would see? I think um, the the type of cancer and the speed of the diagnosis and the speed of things that happened is probably, not, you know, that's it's quite unique to that type. There's certain types of tumours that you tend to need treatment really quickly. And actually, the fact, you know, they're actually often very chemotherapy sensitive treatments, um, cancers. And so, you know, it, I've heard that story a lot, but only because of the, the arena that I work in. Um, and it is often young people, you know, young people, they, they, you tend to feel quite well until you've, you know, until you're kind of really not well. Um, so there's a lot of compensation up until that point. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it, as as you said, Elena, you know, you were, you know, Prof Eccle is, is one of the, the leading people in this, you know, he's basically pretty much that's everyone follows what he does sort of thing. Um, and that can be quite a reassuring thing. Um, and so I think that's probably gave you quite a lot of confidence at that beginning point where it's like, you know, should you have treatment? Should you not have treatment? Um, and I think that's also, you know, uh, you know, you've not had radiotherapy within your treatment but you were told at one point there might be something and I think part of the whole patient journey is about knowing that that all of your options are being thought about and I think I would imagine Elena from your experience that actually at some points it felt a bit like you were not getting the time to think about those decisions because it was like right you know you're in ICU you need to have treatment you're going to have chemotherapy and I can imagine that it's sort of would have been quite overwhelming and everything I don't know you know that's that's something which is quite unique to certain types of cancers because often you get a diagnosis and and actually for a lot of people there's a lot of waiting around there's a lot of kind of waiting to meet the specialist and waiting to do this and whatever whereas actually the way in which you've described your history is you know it very much was like especially the recurrence you know it was like right you know x-ray oh straight in ITU you know get having treatment quite quickly and it's 
the whole kind of time concept within that is quite difficult. Um, and I think um, it's nobody's journey is typical, um, but you can kind of meet people along the way that there are similarities. Um, I don't know how you felt, Elena, with that. Yeah, um, I completely agree with what you said about exploring all your options. So I remember finishing chemo and then um, I had the immunotherapy, which is pembrolizumab, which actually hasn't been tried on my rare cancer before. <clears throat> so it was obviously very scary to think, right, I'm just going on to this immunotherapy and we have no idea what the outcome is going to be. But I can't be more grateful for... Professor Seckle discussing it with his MDT. I remember he suggested radiotherapy after my chemo because I have, I still do have a residual two millimeter tiny mass in my left lung of inactive cells. And it's scary living with what you know, uh, used to be cancer, uh, might still be cancer, could come back and be cancer whenever. Um, but to have him suggest this treatment that I know could be uh, helpful for someone in the future to know that it might have worked um, and to know that there is also the option of radiotherapy in the future were I were that mass to grow further is also really reassuring because what I wouldn't have wanted was to run out of options I suppose um, so that's just something I'm grateful for that he went to discuss it with all the specialists at Charing Cross and yeah I'm just really grateful really. Gemma on that point from Elena apart from following Prof Seckle's evidence, how do you come to a decision around different treatment options? So, yeah, I mean, I, th I think, well, first, yeah, we wouldn't have done any anything different, but I think it is, it's very much this multidisciplinary team approach. Um, and I think nowadays it is very structured within that, you know, we, we spend hours of our week discussing patients um, and, you know, as as their clinician so you know their history and everything you still then go to the team you you discuss it with your direct colleagues so you know i have there's one point in the week where i have a meeting just with the oncology team so the medical oncologist and the clinical oncologists and so that's medical oncologists just do the chemotherapy and the clinical oncologists do the chemo and the radiotherapy and so we have a meeting just with us so we can discuss cases that we're going to be seeing in in the week that we want to see what other options there are or see if someone can think of something different but then we have our kind of full multi disciplinary team meeting um, and you know we sit there for hours <laughs> and we discuss we've got our radiologists there our surgeons our pathologists the oncologists and in that we we take all of our cases so it's all the new cases but it's also the cases of relapse and things like that where we we feel that there is something we need to review within the team and we want to check that there are other options and things and then separately we do our own kind of prep so before clinic you know, I always check who's coming and I check whether they've got their scan results and you kind of review it all. So there's a huge amount of work that goes on behind the scenes. And I think, you know, it's very much, I think probably a lot, well, certainly I know from a lot of my patients, they feel like, you know, it's sort of me making these decisions, but it's, you know, it's rarely that it's just me, you know, it's, it's the whole team. And it's also that, you know, it can be, I mean, nowadays we release results to patients, even full scan results and things. And actually, sometimes when I read the scan results, I'm a bit like, what's this? I'm not quite sure. And that's what these meetings are for. We actually kind of really look at everything in detail and we discuss all the different options. And then we also have people in there who are, to, who are kind of more interested in research 
or what we call the early phase trials, which are the trials which are kind of newer things, much newer medications coming through. And so we'll be asking them what, the, what options there could be at that point and things. Because as Elena said, you know, it's great to be trying new medications and things because a they might work really well for you but also it's about helping people in the future and it's really great to hear that you you feel Elena that that was something that you're kind of grateful for that a I mean obviously it's worked for you that's fantastic but it's also the fact that actually in the future there might be people that will benefit from the fact that you've had that and I think it's very difficult going through re, like trials and things with patients because sometimes you can feel a bit like you're a guinea pig or something but it's so much more complex than that and it's it, and as I said it's never you know just not thought about but beyond kind of behind the process and behind that decision um, so it's a really complicated thing um, but I think it's you know it's so for me making a decision especially when you're talking about you know patients who are perhaps you know more palliative nearer the end of life you really want to know that you're looking for all options and what the best thing for them is so it's nice to have that whole team to to go to and to discuss that with and it's nice for the patient to know that as well and I think patients don't necessarily realize because it's really you know it is a very thought out process as much as you might have a five minute consultation where we're saying hey okay we're going to give you this chemotherapy sign on the line um you know actually the process before that is lots of hours of work Gemma can I ask do you ever invite patients because I know through some other pathologies you know some other specialist areas they would actively invite um the patients to be part of that discussion does that ever happen within oncology and I suppose then Elena is that something that you would then actively take up if that was an option yeah so it's something that we we do on a very individual basis so like our as I said our multidisciplinary team meetings are like you know three and a half hours of kind of going through patients and you know there can in some you know it ranges from like 30 patients to 100 patients being discussed in various lengths of MDTs so those are not great forums to have a patient kind of you know dropping in and out of but it's but there are ones where we would have we would have um, you know kind of more members of the team specifically involved with that case and we do it quite a lot with with kind of where we have the surgeons the clinical oncologist and or the medical oncologist um, with the patient all making a decision at that time and sometimes it's more when when it's a very when actually we don't really know um, because there are situations where you know surgery or chemo radiotherapy or something might be equivalent in and similar with their outcomes but it's just the side effects and how you know the actual practicalities of the treatment are different and how patients tolerate it um, and in those situations it's very much you know it needs to be a discussion with the patient and their families or their advocates um, and so we do it in that sort of scenario yeah um, yeah, I think hearing you talk about just how much work goes on behind the scenes, as you said, is crazy to me because I've experienced how that's just translated into a 10 minute conversation afterwards. And it just emphasises the importance of what the doctor says to the patient, because I've had so many experiences with medical professionals where you pick up on like certain phrases that just kind of stick with you and sometimes those phrases might stick with you in the form of trauma or in a form of like this niggling uncertainty in the back of your mind that won't really leave you alone so it's something I'm definitely going to carry forward as a doctor is just choice of wording is so important and open-mindedness in really assessing what that patient's expectations are because for example like during my treatment, 
when I started on chemotherapy, I would just ask my doctor, like, does that mean I can't step foot in a club? Like, 18-year-old me had really different priorities to what he thought was most important. But he was so good at being patient with me and, like, really helping me to understand the severity of what was happening. And when he talked about radiotherapy and him discussing it with the MDT, he emphasised that... Like they have had a serious discussion about it. All the specialists decided that they'd quote unquote save it for a rainy day. And even though that choice of wording, I'll always remember, it's still um, good to understand that uh, I feel really supported by lots of other medical professionals. And it's just that Professor Seckle himself, he's the one translating um, lots of opinions, lots of expertise um, into, I guess, one case. And he was like, if your immunotherapy works, we'll have to write you up. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. I can be a case study. Wow. <laughs> bit of a hard way to, a bit of a difficult claim to fame, but here we are. <laughs> I think it's really interesting as well that the that actually I think it is sometimes valuable to talk to people about what is not being given to them. Because especially now with Google, you know, you can Google whatever treatment or it's also not even with Google, but like, you know, you'll sit, you'll sit on a chemotherapy unit and you'll talk to the person next to you and you hear about this treatment and then you sort of think but why haven't I been given that why haven't you know why has nobody discussed that with me and actually sometimes some of the most valuable conversations can be why we're not giving treatment to people um and it's you know any treatment decision is about you know risks versus benefit um and it it's sort of it's something which I think we don't you know there's no point in me seeing someone like in my schedule to say hi there's no point in giving you radiotherapy, you know, because that's not necessarily valuable to in my time because they're not going to get anything from it. But actually, I think patients might get things from that if it's ever within the pathway that is standard or whatever. And I think it's important that sometimes the negative things are discussed. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Um, we don't exactly as Elena said, you might have a five or 10 minute consultation and within that, it's quite difficult to narrow it down. I mean, speaking to a general practitioner, they get seven minutes and three minutes to write it up and have 12 to 15 patients a day. It's, it's difficult to balance everything together. Elena, I have a, a difficult question for you, which you might not want to ask, because uh, I'm going to try and get you to ask Gemma. But thinking back on your experiences as a patient, uh, and some of the phrases or questions or any grey areas that you feel might not have been covered. If Gemma was your oncologist, what would you ask her now? Oh, that is a difficult one. And I think it's really weird because looking back at my state of vulnerability when I first relapsed, for example, all I wanted to do was just live the present. I remember my mum was a Google searcher at the time, so she was taking on those worries and concerns. And I was kind of just focused entirely on the fact that I was being forced to drop out of medical school something I'd worked so hard for something I didn't know if I'd go back to um so I think looking back it's quite difficult to put myself in those shoes but now when I I remember my journey of getting better I would really wonder the actual science behind why I'd relapsed so I remember asking my doctor so much later on like but why did it spread into my lungs like it started in an in a cyst like where did those cells come from like what have I done not like I never questioned that to such an extent but it's just as a medical student you ask yourself those questions as well because you learn about the science and everything um but I guess now something I'm curious about to ask Emma is if so I understand that 
the radiotherapy wouldn't have been the first line of choice following immunotherapy because obviously it's really close to really important structures like the heart and everything and I've had enough x-rays to last me a lifetime so I don't want any more radiation thank you but um say I were to be a patient that was to say no no I do not like do anything you can to get rid of that two millimeter mass of cells how do you go about managing that as a doctor yeah I think that's really hard isn't it because it, it again it's like the patient expectations versus what is definitely the best in their best interests and I think you know again that you know that MDT forum where we're discussing and you're you've got opinions of colleagues and it's not just your kind of idea that well it's the the risk versus the benefit doesn't mean that it's going to benefit this person but I think it's about it's you know there are patients who want everything absolutely everything thrown at it but you always have to look at the evidence and you have to know exactly you know what the benefit is um, and it's really difficult in rare cancers because you know you can't quote evidence from like a thousand patients receiving the treatment or not um, but you definitely know what the risks are um, and I think in young patients radiotherapy you have to consider it in even more detail because there, there's a lot of risks which are late effects um, you know and in patients who have got really good outcomes and they're responding to treatment really well um, you know there's a significant risk of second cancers there's significant risk of significant fibrosis and it affects every part of the body that it goes through and radiotherapy can be an absolutely amazing treatment it can be a curative treatment just by itself in some cancers um, but if someone is going to survive for many years beyond it there are significant issues with survivorship um, and you know I mean I don't know whether you've still got any of your effects from the chemotherapy and the immunotherapy and things but even that you know you get long-term numbness and tingling you know with immunotherapy you can get all sorts of effects that are, are later on um, but with radiotherapy you know there's late second cancers there's um, insufficiency fractures in the bones there's effect on the heart function um, and obviously in your mediastinum that's going to be that and then there's the effects on the lungs so these are all long-term risks and I think you just have to be you have to be factual and sit down and talk about all of these risks and then what the potential benefit is and explain and, and justify why it is that, that there isn't necessarily the benefit. And I think it's important patients like that have those discussions and not just be told, well, it was discussed in the MDT, you're not for radiotherapy. Um, and I think that's the thing I will often see people to discuss that there isn't any effective treatment or whatever, because I think that can be really valuable in the pathway um, and in their treatment. Elena, was that something that you considered when you were kind of thinking about the treatments that were being offered to you? Did you think about the side effects and the impact on, on your life? Well, so it's difficult, right? Because they literally throw you a piece of paper and they're like, this is for chemotherapy, these are the side effects, like hearing damage, nerve damage, death, and you're like, right, yeah, <laughs> here's my name, here's my signature. <laughs> but what, like, it, it, nothing else crosses your mind. You're like, well, this is my life, I guess. Like, I don't want to die, so... You don't really think about the implications coming on. I think at the time I was like, I, I take each day as it comes, like we'll deal with that, that's a problem for the future. And now I have my nerve damage and it bothers me in yoga because it, I struggle with my balance. I have hearing damage, so I wear my hearing aids, you know. So there's constant reminders in my day-to-day -day life, but it's what gives me strength. It's what reminds me of how hard I had to fight to be where I am today. Um, I remember 
my doctor was so unsure on how my response to the chemotherapy would be that he was even talking about high dose chemotherapy as a backup option um, when I finished my uh, first rounds of chemotherapy and he was like we can he started to tell me the details of high dose chemotherapy being an inpatient for extended amount of time liquid diet all of this and I think he must have read my face or something he was like we can save that discussion for when it comes and I was like yes thanks like that's a great plan and he was like good idea like good decision and I'm just really glad that I didn't have to endure the chemotherapy difficult enough knowing that um with this negative thought of oh but I actually still might need to do even worse you know um experience even worse symptoms so um taking each day as it comes was really beneficial to me and I'm really glad that he was able to read that as well. I understand that some patients might want to know all the details straight away so that they can prepare themselves for it. So it just emphasises how important it is as a doctor um, to assess that individual case and to understand what the patient needs at that time. Um, yeah, I guess that's all I have to say about that. I think I think that's so true. And I think it's so difficult from, from, the, from our perspective, especially when you need to be getting a signature on that paper because you literally I mean sometimes you can see you know you're going through the stuff and you're you know you're ticking off the boxes of all the side effects and it's just like way over someone's head and it's and it's so difficult because you know the the patient needs the information um, because they do need to be informed about some risks and things because they need to know to to let us know about them um, but also you do need to kind of get signed so that we can get on with the treatment. And it's such a tricky balance. Um, and I think that's where, again, the whole team comes in, because often we'll have cases like that where, you know, I, you can just see that, that that it's just it's kind of I don't know, they've they've heard cancer, they've heard chemotherapy. And then beyond that, you know, they're not hearing anything. Um, but then that's when, you know, I'll get the specialist nurse to call them in a couple of days time to go through everything. Um, and that's when it's really helpful having someone with you in clinic and all these sorts of things. But then, you know, you tell, you know, when do you tell patients, oh, by the way, it'd be really good if you brought someone to clinic with you this time without letting on that, you know, something bad is happening or whatever. Um, so it's, it's, it's so difficult because there's different agendas to to follow and the ideal world you know you would be like fine I'll get you back tomorrow we'll talk about it again but you know it, when you need to get on with treatment quickly or you know you've you've only got a clinic once a week or something like that you know it's it's so difficult with the practical side of it um and I think it's and it's exactly like you said earlier you remember snippets of what's said so you remember certain things and like the whole of stuff you know you might be told you know you might have a whole hour consultation but you'll remember you know four or five snippets of what was said and they're probably things that we wouldn't even think of that important but they'll just be the tiny things um you know and it's often things like fertility or something that you know because your brain is still thinking about that when when then the doctor has moved on to something else so it's a really hard balance um but then as i said that's where you know specialist nurses having someone else with you and stuff you know you can reinforce a lot of these these things later and it's important that we make sure that happens um because it's very easy to just go through the whole thing without really realizing someone hasn't absorbed the information they've been given jamie if you're kind of obviously with patients who might be under the age of 18 they'll probably have a carer or family member you know parents with them so we've had feedback before through the podcast that some younger people have almost been not included in that conversation how do you negotiate that because if they're very young 
um, that's difficult to then tell them, okay, you might have to have hearing aids when you're older, but then you're speaking to the parents. How do you navigate that kind of scenario? Yeah, it's really hard. And I think it's, um, I think, I think in that situation, it's often, often the parents can be, or the, the carers or whoever can be very, um, kind of overpowering really because they're so worried and they want to have they almost want to have all the information and everything um, and I think it's important to kind of have always go back to the patient and you know even whatever age they are it's making sure they're they're in on the conversation and including them in that um, because I think it's what they I mean it's like what Elena was saying you know she was worried about still going out with her mates clubbing and whatever because that's that's what your priorities are um but they still need to know the information and a lot of you know especially when you're in the kind of teenage years and things you know these patients are completely competent and have the capacity to be able to consent for everything themselves you know because they can understand it they can weigh it up they can make decisions themselves um but it's it's often the sort of parents go into major parental mode um, because you would do because you want to protect your little one and whatever even I mean you even see it with older people <laughs> you know the parents try and be protective um, and I think it's just always being mindful of it and it's like Elena says you know it's about us thinking about it and realizing when when that's happening when they're being ignored within the conversation and it's making sure that everyone gets their time to have the discussion um, and I think there's a lot of you know for example at UCLH we've got a really good um, teenage young adult service and things and and it, there's a lot of people who are um, engaged with making sure that that everybody is catered for because actually dealing with parents and carers is very different to dealing with the patients themselves um, because of, of their needs and their anxieties and all that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if you've, you've sort of experienced that along your way, especially, you know, kind of as you got older with your diagnosis and then the recurrence, whether you noticed that there was a sort of shift more that you were the focus or you, or how it felt for you, Elena. Um, so I was 17 when I was first diagnosed, which means that um, Lon the, London, the London clinic that had received my cyst um, called my parents. So they picked me up from school and I was like, this is so weird. Why are both of them picking me up from school? It was kind of exciting though, because they were like, we heard from London and I was like, ooh, like, because I'm just interested in the science at this point. Like, I kind of liked being on, like, obviously my operations were awful, but it was exciting because I got a different perspective. I was in a hospital for once. Um, so I'm just curious at this point and then we walk into this ward and I remember from my medical experience I was like googling the name of the ward and then I'm just like taking in my surroundings there's just cancer posters everywhere so I'm sat here like like oh my god um, your life feels like a movie at that point and none of them said anything they couldn't say anything and I understand why like how do you break that news they didn't know what to expect either so we went to see the doctor straight away and um she kind of just told me what i was anticipating the previous 10 minutes um but i wouldn't have really wanted that i don't know how that could have gone any better and then when i was at uni i'd suddenly gained all this independence anyway i was 18 suddenly um went to take the x-ray by myself um and my mum flew up straight to come and see me and i was so grateful to have her there um but I was definitely grateful to have both of us talking to the doctors all the time. My mum never left my side if the, if I was talking to someone, really. And you're really grateful for that, especially on chemotherapy, because of chemo brain, you don't take in half the stuff. Um, 
there's this phenomenon that you literally, your brain stops working. I remember hating it. And I would say to my doctor, I feel stupid. I've turned stupid. And he'd have to remind me, no, you're a medical student. You're fine. It's just the medicine. Um, so I was really grateful that I had her by my side. Um, and But I was still involved in all the decisions. So we would write lists of questions we'd want to ask him, which was really important. And I remember mum and I would just be on the ward thinking of things that we were concerned about or doubting so we would write stuff down of things that we wanted to clarify with him and I think he was even grateful for that because he knew he was answering the things that were important to us and that meant a lot and I think I just want to emphasize just how much you can feel like you're in the dark as a patient you know that there's so much happening in the hospital around you so much planning going on so much like prescribing that you're going to be receiving and if you don't really understand why it can be really really daunting um, and discovering symptoms after the treatment you've received. Like, I remember finding out about um, the steroids and why it was making me, like, so accelerated and anxious, and um, it just made me feel so, so strange and so unlike myself. And then they told me it was the steroids, um, which I probably would have preferred to know sooner, but who would have known I was going to experience all those things? Like, you really can't get it right, and I can't even imagine just how difficult it is as a doctor. And people complain about the NHS, they complain about the waiting times, but um, they cured me. I am where I am today. I'm, at the end of the day, grateful. Um, I don't think anyone can get it right all the time, um, but it's all a learning process, I suppose. And I think that's the thing. It's actually about being a human with your patients. And I think, you know, like, my patients, you know, my patient, like my my long-term patients, they'll ask me about my family and things like that. And I think, you know, they, they, you know, as you say, you can't get it right all the time. And I think it's, it's, it's important to be human and to have human, like just have that compassion and listen to people and to try and read people and stuff. And, and, you know, you do get to know, you know, when you're having treatment regularly, you get to know people, um, and you can judge when they're having a difficult, more difficult time um, or also when they're not taking things in, when, you know, chemo brain is really bad and they're really not absorbing any information. Um, and I think it's it's sort of, you know, it's really it makes a difference to how the patient's experience is when they realize that the people around them are human. And I, I think I think that makes a difference. That's one of the reasons that I actually, I, you know, I really enjoy my job because it's it's the human contact and and it's it's a privilege actually as a as a doctor um the insights that we get into humans and to people um you know there's very few people i can talk about the things i talk about with my patients um with so easily um you know and um and i think it that that is much better when it's a two-way thing rather than i mean you know i think it's it it's a valuable thing to be human um, and I think it's important that patients remember that doctors are human and vice versa um, and that makes a big difference to the communication and the whole pathway. Yeah sorry just to add to that Gemma um, what you say about being human resonates so so much especially recently in medicine where we're starting to come up with case studies and we're doing our GP role plays and you're taught medicine in a way that's like Here's your patient, these are the symptoms, risk factors, treatment, outcomes, symptoms. And you can like be a medical student and then you come up with your little case and you present it and you role play it with your patient. And I'll be doing it and I'm like, this is all fun and games, but really, not, surely real life, it does not present this way. Like, I've lived it. Like, um, things are so unexpected. There's You can't really 
you can't embrace a patient as if it was a textbook case study. Um, so the So again, it just emphasises the importance of recognising that individual um, case that you've got sat in front of you and all the other factors that are influencing the life of that patient that could also have an impact on the outcome of the treatment and everything, like even just the people they're surrounded by will have massive implications on the outcome. So um, I think that's something that can be really easily forgotten in healthcare and it's so much easier said than done to be compassionate. We even laugh about it in medical school, like, oh, there's another communication tutorial, haha. But you meet some people and some peers and you're like, oh my God, you're actually going to have to interact with people? <laughs> like, listen carefully, please, because <laughs> some people just don't really understand what it is to be on the receiving end of difficult conversations and to be delivered that so I remember being in ICU and um in literally in the ICU an 18 year old girl and the doctor came to me and she was like we're gonna give you this injection like you only have one ovary like usually you should give this two months in advance but we're giving it to you right now but your chemo's tomorrow and like usually only to save you 60% because you only get one ovary like just leaving me to do the maths in my brain and I'm just sat there like oh my god I'm not gonna have kids when I'm older and when I told Professor Seckle this conversation um, he literally apologised on her behalf because he emphasised that he'd been the one to do the research and, like, no chemo and an ovary or one ovary and, and chemo. Like, he has enough um, stats from his own patients to show that um, there's not that much of a difference of fertility outcomes. So that's just when I'm grateful, again, to be under his care and to um, know that people... Um, know what the patients need to hear and the reassurance that we need communication is very difficult to get right you can always think you've done something well but someone will remind you actually you said it this way and you then you'll think oh shit that was not the right thing to say to a patient the amount of times i've made a mistake as a junior like early 20s in that moment it's obviously difficult to try and balance as Gemma was saying earlier the evidence to what you need to hear in that moment onto what the agenda is for the pe like the person in front of you it's so difficult and yeah people like joe who are lecturers thanks for trying to teach us the question that i had Gemma, was around the clinical trials because i would imagine consenting for a clinical trial and also obviously supporting someone through a clinical trial as they experience any side effects from treatment how do you navigate that because that is something totally different and we've already established that getting consent right for a standard treatment pathway is difficult yeah um i think the the consent process is always quite tricky because you you sort of uh, we all, you know you always start off by saying well this is the standard treatment this is what we would do um, and then this is something additional so you know you've gone through that whole consent kind of information giving where they're already a bit overwhelmed and then you're throwing in something additional um, and I think I mean the first thing is that you know I only I only run trials that I actually believe in that I think are going to be beneficial um, I think the only way we've got to where we've got to and you know especially in in oncology um, and and cancer treatments you know the only way we've got to where we've got to is from trials you know as you know all of these new treatments um treating endometrial cancer in the last year 
We've had this whole shift to using immunotherapy. So actually we use pembrolizumab now um, as well as different other immunotherapies. And that's all from trials that I have been involved in and I, you know, I've had patients in. And those patients are so happy now that they can see that actually it's completely changed the treatments, even, even the ones that didn't, well, we think didn't get the treatment. Um, but it is a really hard thing. And I think it's it's something which is very overwhelming for patients. It's something which we have to be clear that it's something usually at the point where I'm discussing it with a patient, it's already got good evidence behind it. So it's all, it's not, you're not a guinea pig. This is not, you know, first in humans. This is not really, um, really experimental stuff. This is just showing something that works, but we're proving that it actually helps to people to be alive at three years, five years or whatever, more than the standard treatment. Um, and I think one of the most difficult things is the the concept of the randomization. So a lot of trials that I'll be involved with will be your phase three randomized trials where basically you've got your standard, half the patients get standard treatment or a third of the patients get standard treatment and then half or two thirds will get the experimental treatment. So the standard plus additional or whatever it is. Um, and so actually you go through this whole process, you give them all this information um, and then they think, okay, great. Well, there's this option. I might be getting some new, new treatments. And then actually they then a computer randomly selects them as getting the standard treatment. And I think that can be really quite difficult for patients. Um, so it's really important in the consent process that we are so clear with that, that we think that this might be a new, a, a good new treatment, but we don't know. But there's a good chance that within the trial, they'll still get the standard treatment. Um, and there are all sorts of rules about making sure patients have been given information for more than 24 hours and things like that. So, you know, you will always see a patient go through stuff with them and then review them again in clinic later in the week or, or the following week for actual consent for a trial. Um, and then obviously then there's concerns around timing. So does it delay their treatment and that sort of thing, which is why you talk to them about the standard treatment and you try and get that done alongside. And actually it creates quite a lot of work for us. So when, and when patients are on trials, the documentation and everything is a lot more intense. Um, but actually, you know, the monitoring that they have through treatment is, is very similar. I personally find it quite difficult when a patient is getting the side effects of the experimental treatment and it's supposed to be a blinded trial to not be like, oh, you're getting the extra treatment, <laughs> you know, because we're, we're not meant to know and they're not meant to know. <laughs> um, but it's like, you know, they might be getting the bond or side effects of the additional treatment. But then, you know, you do get placebo effects and things. Um, so it is, it, it's a really complex thing. And I think it's, it is you know, so much of, of oncology is so much information giving. And, you know, we've touched on the fact that, you know, a standard chemotherapy consent is, you know, overwhelming for a patient and the amount of information you get given. And then adding trials into that is even more. So, you know, we've recently, um, we recently presented the interlace trial, which is um, chemotherapy before chemo radiotherapy for cervical cancer. Um, and that was a really hard one to, to discuss with patients because you're, giving them a new diagnosis of cervix cancer and saying they need chemo radiotherapy as soon as possible. Um, and there's a huge amount of information with that because it's chemotherapy and radiotherapy and brachytherapy. And then you're adding in the additional trial and additional chemotherapy. And it's sort of, you know, the amount of information you have to give is just so overwhelming. Um, and, you know, you give lots of paper and you just hope that they've got someone with them that sometimes, you know, people have got people scribing. But, you know, for you, Elena, it was like having your mum there and especially having someone consistently there. So the same person 
person there getting the information and kind of processing the information as well because you walk away from the consultation and you say oh well she said that it's likely that this is going to happen it's like no no no, that's not what she said she said this <laughs> and you have that conversation um you know of oh hang on that's not quite how i interpreted it um so it's just it, it's it's you know clinical trials are a bit of a minefield to to navigate and there have been situations where, you know, patients have consented because they said, whatever you think, doctor, I'll do it. And I kind of feel really like I'm trying to force this information onto them. But they're like, I'll just sign. And I kind of feel like, OK, you just sign. But but actually, I really do need to give you this information as well, because especially with trials, you, you don't know 100 percent they're going to benefit from the treatment. You know, you, you know that there's some benefit, but is it really beneficial on top of the standard? So they do need to know all the all the risks and things. So, yeah, it's. That's a very long answer to say it's hard. <laughs> and Elena, do you feel like you experienced that from the patient perspective? Um, definitely. I think that the amount of times I've had to clarify with my mum about symptoms I was experiencing or um, the direction that things were going to take is definitely so useful to um, be in it with someone else. And it was always my mum, as you say, um, I remember my dad was just always like not with it but we we understood because he wasn't really the one always in the consultation so we would just feed back to him and that just became the norm we had our routine um yeah and I think for me it was especially difficult because my specialist treatment is all the way in London but I live in North Devon which is really rural so I did a lot of traveling to London and a lot of like um coordinating with my local oncologist who was communicating with London and we wanted to know like um we'd have to like wait around and see what was being said but the MDT was taking place in London and it all felt a bit jumbled sometimes um so my London treatment does try and keep it over there as much as possible even if that means me traveling a long way but I remember being fed up eventually because I'd have to introduce myself to so many different doctors and hearing over and over again the whole so can you tell me a bit about what brought you here and I'm like how am I meant to, like, tell my whole story all over again? Like, here we are again. Like, did you not read my notes? Like, just fed up. Like, I know it's protocol. I know we have a script. But it did get really exhausting. And so my mum would read my face and, like, chime in and, like, do do all the nitty-gritty stuff for me when I just didn't want to be in A&E again just because my temperature was spiked, you know? Um, so, yeah, communication, important. Easier said than done, all that stuff. But I don't blame anyone. I'm really grateful for everyone I met along the way. I know everyone's just doing their best. Thank you, Elena. Gemma, I have a question around being a doctor, and this might help Elena, I hope, moving forward. But how would you define a good doctor? With everything that we've talked to about so far, all the little intricacies. Um, I, I think the being human is a very important thing. And I think um, listening to your patient, um, because it's you can know all the statistics and everything and know every treatment option but actually you can look that up you can prepare that you can and actually one thing is you never I've never had a patient be upset with me when I've said I don't know that but I know how I can find out um so being honest is the other thing um because that's where you can dig yourself into holes um but I think it's you know, it's about being the human, about the communicating um, and the honesty and reading the patients. Um, and I think all of that, you know, as much as 
as you alluded to, Elena, often, you know, get communication skilled out in at university. Actually, it is really, really important. Um, and, you know, to have gotten into medical school, people have got enough brains to do the job. Um, but it's it's about that humanity and about getting the balance of listening to a patient and getting the agenda completed as well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's humanity, I think. Gemma, if there's one bit of advice you could give to your younger self as a doctor, what would you give? Oh, God, that's a hard one. Um, I probably would I probably would have been interested in oncology a bit earlier. <laughs> I would have been like, do oncology, do radiotherapy. Um, like, don't stress about the exams. That would be the one thing. Because, you know, you get a few goes and the exams are not, you know, whether you passed every single exam first time nobody cares about that at this point in my career you know that's not what matters um and you know you need to enjoy the time and remind yourself why you're doing it um and sometimes the exams can be really kind of tick boxy and can be quite a stressful time and it's it's yeah don't worry too much about the the exams first time around <laughs> easier said than done hey elena yeah good to know isn't it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Elena, you mentioned at the start about being really passionate about maybe becoming involved in clinical trials. What do you think it is that kind of spurs you on to think that's something you want to get involved in? Um, I think just having lived the lived experience myself of knowing how powerful um, experimental treatments can be. Um, I guess having a really rare cancer and just being able to reflect back and think if this had been five, ten years ago and I was um, in the same situation but with less research, I might not be where I am today or if I was in a different country, different circumstances, it's really crazy to think and it really makes you grateful for medical advances. So being able to play a part in that would be huge for me, definitely, just being able to save more lives, you know? I mean... Um, we're doing coding at the moment and statistics and everything and it's painful but you know that without those statistics people um, like med the NHS wouldn't be progressing in the way it is and um, the new studies and everything just can literally transform people's lives um, yeah I just really think that the human thing about interacting with patients is so important they recently told us that the patients are telling you the answer and I think that's so important to remember because, as we've emphasised, medicine isn't just facts. It's a human that you're looking at and you need to really assess them as a whole. Can I ask a difficult question? And by all means, you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. But Elena, if you had have had side effects from the clinical trial that had affected your quality of life, if you'd have had your time again, is that something that, you know, you were... Put really prepared to take the risk on or was it because you were reliant upon the healthcare professionals and their judgment um i think i would i think it's really difficult because if i was experiencing those symptoms at the time i'd probably be fed up because i know what it is to be at rock bottom i did not want any more chemotherapy i was in a stage of my life where i was more comfortable sleeping than awake and that's that goes really deep so it just shows just 
how heavily you are impacted by um, treatment sometimes. But I would want to say that I would trust the health professionals. And, um, yeah, I think trust goes such a long way because there were times where I would question, like, oh, Professor Seckle said I didn't need chemotherapy the first time around, but maybe if I'd had it the first time around, I wouldn't be where I am now. It wouldn't have been as bad, but then I wouldn't have gone to medical school, you know? So um, as crazy as it is, I don't think I would have changed anything. Um, I think I'd still... I'd do it all again if I had to, if it meant that I ended up as I am now, and even if that meant difficult implications along the way. I would, like, speak back on my old self and be like, it does get better, it's going to be worth it. And I would use things like visualisations and stuff when all I could do was lie down and stare at the ceiling. I would, like... It was a form of manifestation, just using my imagination to picture me having fun, being in the sea again, being with friends. Um, And to think that's where I am today is really crazy to look back on. And it just meant enduring some serious pain at the time, but... Um, it's because of the health professionals that supported me and made those decisions for me along the way that I'm able to be here now. So, yeah. Thank you, Elena. And Gemma, I suppose to flip that back on you as an oncologist, how does it feel when trials do affect people's quality of life or maybe the results aren't as what we had hoped for? Yeah, I think um, one of the things I always say to patients when I'm consenting them is that once they've signed on the dotted line, my job is about keeping them as well as possible through the treatment. Um, And for any of my treatments, I want to keep people, you know, I always say, I want want you to be as well as possible for as long as possible. And often when it's a curative treatment, you will really push them, you know, and patients will feel rock bottom and they'll really struggle with, with the effects and things. So it's really it is really dependent upon what the aim of your treatment is um, because you'll really push someone and we've got loads of really good supportive medications and and things that help with stuff like sickness and pain and whatever Um, and we can give a lot of that but it's still things like the tiredness and all that sort of thing that's very difficult to to manage Um, and so we'll really push you if we think it's going to be a really good outcome but if it's something where you know they're going to get an extra few months survival benefit then actually it's a matter of kind of um, trying to just balance the the dose that you're giving and trying to manage those side effects as best as possible. And it is difficult in a clinical trial because you don't know how much benefit they, they're getting, but obviously you do know if it's a palliative setting or a curative setting. So you kind of still know how much to push it by. We always end our um, episodes with top tips So, Elena, to anyone listening, whether healthcare professionals, patients, academics, researchers, are there anything from your perspective you would love them to take away from this episode? Just think about what they would want to hear. Um, Think about that patient, like just put yourself in in their shoes and just understand uh, the word choicing. Um, that can really just manifest itself as trauma later on perhaps and assess that patient and just be human as we've said like love and compassion go such a long way in terms of feeling cared for Um, fill your patient with hope not false hope but hope in the journey and in the support that they're receiving because it will make a huge difference 
so I would stick with the be human. Um, and I would also for patience say, ask questions, always ask questions. Cause if something doesn't make sense or, um, if you don't remember what it was that was discussed, just ask. And that can be to your doctor, to your specialist nurse, um, and to the people that were in the room with you. Um, so, you know, be open and just ask questions. Oh, thank you so much. So thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your host today have been myself, Joe McNamara and Numjol Anderson. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. There's also an evaluation link for this series in the show notes, so please do take some time to complete that. Thank you all for listening and take care.